0: reason, sedition, rebellion, this is the heritage of the American patriot, those revolutionaries who stood on principle to fight against tyranny no matter the cost, and that spirit lives strong today in the activists and freedom fighters who fight against the authoritarian state, each in their own way, each with their own mission. United
1: but had the idea to run on a platform of fuck the police prior to actually winning the primate.
0: I mean AOC is a drama queen and she's full of shit <laughs>
1: they said you don't get to tell us no we're in the state health department and I said hell no
0: you brought a freaking guillotine people
1: already pushing
0: back in ways that didn't even need any votes to be passed I'm not ratting on anybody and I did what I did so you're gonna have to give me what the law says you have to give
1: me you want to make the world a better place Have some babies and raise them to not be stupid. hope I don't get canceled talking to
0: you. These are the people whose stories I'm here to share. I'm Justin O'Donnell, and this is Submersive. Man, governments are not going to like this shit. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, activists, anarchists, and shitposters of the internet, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. As always, I'm your host, Justin O'Donnell. And before we get started, just remember, whatever platform you listen on, whether it's YouTube Live, Odyssey, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Anchor, or on the air at lrn.fm, you can grow the show by liking, commenting, subscribing, and most of all, sharing with your friends if you enjoy the content you can join the insurgency by heading over to patreon.com o'donnell again that's patreon.com odonnell odo ell today to help support the show and if you want you can check out our sponsor Sneck swag for all your favorite liberty merch for your favorite brand new designs for t-shirts hoodies coffee mugs and official podcast merch and road campaign merch from all your favorite libertarian candidates across the country and again you can wear your principles literally on your sleeve so check out Snackswag.com today and if you want to keep in touch between shows follow me on social media And join our community Discord channel, where you can chat with other fans of the show at any time. All these links can be found in the description of the video or podcast you're listening to, so make sure to check them out today. And if you couldn't guess from the title of the show, we're here to talk today about how one of the most influential books in history got everything wrong. And for the past 174 years, we've dealt with the cultural and social and political backlash, and it's time to fix the book and change the world, and joining me today... Host of the Wake Up Podcast, creator of the Bitcoin Times, and co-author of the Uncommunist Manifesto, Alex Svesky. Alex, thanks for joining today. How are you,
1: Justin? Thank you, brother. I was uh, I was enjoying that intro, um, <laughs> and the and and some of that merch is pretty cool too, man. I like it. Yeah, m- most of it I've actually
0: designed myself, but we do have a couple of the designers on the merch team uh, and some real cool. stuff that goes up there. Uh, you know, not everybody believes in intellectual property, so derivative works are always encouraged. Uh, if you- Dude, it's cool. <laughs> and So, I, I mean, here today, talk about what you've done and the work you've done uh, with your book, The Uncommunist Manifesto. And I, I think anybody who's engaged in politics at any level is – Hopefully, at least read the Communist Manifesto. Um, if they're not, if not, if not having read it, at least be aware of it and the damage it's caused. Uh, not just mm-hmm. globally, millions upon millions of lives that have been lost to such a terrible philosophy. But like, what inspired you to actually like sit down and write the Uncommunist Manifesto and get things going?
1: Yeah the the inspiration actually came from. It's it's funny how these things kind of emerge out of nowhere. And I was in El Salvador just before the the Bitcoin announcement uh, in July of I think it was 2021. Um, and I was there with Mark Moss. He and I were having lunch, and he he asked me just offhand. He's like, "Dude, have you read the Communist Manifesto?" And my answer was, "Why the fuck would I read that?" <laughs> it was like he goes it's so bad (laughs) i'm "I'm sure it is you know i said why the hell would i want to give myself some brain damage reading that stupidity and um and anyway you know he just sort of said because i wonder why something like you know simple hasn't been you know written to kind of refute it and anyway that sort of seed planted something in my head and about six months later i reached out to him and you know i had a couple life changes that had occurred for me in December of 2021. And I had some space in January of 2022. And I said, dude, let's get together and let's write this book. And I, I don't think we we knew what we were essentially getting ourselves into. I think, you know, part of us thought we were going to write like a refutation, uh, you know, point by point. And I remember when I was first taking notes, that's effectively what I did. I was reading the Communist Manifesto, giving myself brain damage, and just kind of refuting the points and just, just finding the logical inconsistencies and the philosophic fallacies, I guess. And and as I was doing that, um, you know, I put together, you know, a good sort of body of content. And when we got together, the book took a completely different turn. Instead of it being a refutation of the Communist Manifesto or a point-by-point refutation, it's kind of its, its own manifesto. And And we didn't we didn't set out to call it the Uncommunist Manifesto. That was actually also a joke. We were, um, it was during the week we were writing it and we were sitting there at a table and we didn't know what we were, we were going to call it the Libertarian Manifesto or the Capitalist Manifesto or the Individualist Manifesto or the Sovereign Manifesto or something like that. We are trying, we are throwing around names and it was actually Mark's wife who just kind of, she's like, why did you call it the Uncommunist Manifesto? And we were just like, <laughs> it was one of those moments where you like stop and just look at each other and we're like, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> um so you know th- that's sort of what the book ended up being and yeah it took the 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 way the content emerged took on a life of its own the only thing we really emulated from the original book was sort of the length so the original is like seven eight thousand words Ours is about ten thousand plus the definitions uh the chapter structure uh so you know we sort of introduce it we have a couple chapters in there which kind of mimic the the chapter's for lack of a better term, in the Communist Manifesto, and then it sort of ends with a with a call to action or a call to arms. So, generally, that that's kind of the inspiration. It was kind of emergent. It wasn't it wasn't planned really.
0: I mean, how deep was your research into writing? I mean, was it really as simple as just reading the Communist Manifesto and thinking through it logically and writing your own refutation, or did you spend a lot of time digging deeper into other philosophical works like Rothbard or Hayek or people other people yeah. who have refuted it in the past?
1: Totally, yeah, definitely. I think the, the the book is basically a synthesis of all the things Mark and I have kind of learned over the over the years, right? Whether it is, you know, inspired by you know Rothbard or the Iron Rands of the world, or uh, you know, I, I'm a big student of history, so I I love uh, reading about uh, the you know the greats, basically the you know the the Medieval Japan is quite interesting to me, sort of the the era of the samurai um, and sort of the, the feudal system that came then, which I think is far superior to any sort of uh, egalitarian equalization type system. And I had a funny epiphany actually recently. I was thinking, you know, that there was a reason why stupidities like communism, and socialism didn't exist in the feudal age. It's because your ass would have got fucking chopped down by a night very quickly <laughs> as soon as you started, you know, ranting about like equality and all of that kind of stupidity. So anyway, like I think, as you said, it's much smarter people uh, have refuted all of this stuff in the past. And what we wanted to do was kind of synthesize that and package it up into something that is really short and easy to read, like 10,000 words. It's an hour and a half read. Uh, anybody can read it and they can take away three or four really good ideas and they can share it with a friend. It's not like they're not reading. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's Mises' uh, seminal work? Um, human action. Human action, exactly. They're not reading Human Action, right? Which is going to take them a year to read, and you know, fry it's, their brain in the process. Yeah, no war and peace in this household. Um, exactly. <laughs>
0: well, I, you you talk about hoping somebody can take one or two things away from it and being used as just that kind of a resource. Uh, I jokingly, I half jokingly refer to myself in my own political philosophy as an anarcho-nihilist all the time. And people Mm -hmm. are like, what the hell does that mean? How the hell does that make sense? Like, Well, I'm an anarchist, but I think the addendums to people add on to anarchy to identify themselves whether it's anarcho-capitalist anarcho-mutualist anarcho-communist that's all this shit that doesn't matter what matters is mm-hmm. that you have a system that respects individualism and individual liberty what kind of economics you want to slap onto the end of it doesn't matter as long as it's voluntary and i think there's something that can be learned from every system and every system has something positive to contribute to human uh to human freedom like is there anything from the communist manifesto that isn't all that wrong that that like you're stuck with it and it actually like maybe Marx and Engels were on to some things while being horribly wrong about others.
1: Yeah, that, that's a tricky one because I don't think there's um you know there's a lot that, there's one thing that I remember highlighting towards the end of the book which was his uh idea about uh abolishing uh nation state borders and things like that, which I think, you know makes a lot of sense. I mean, I saw one of the pieces of merch that said, you know, make America states again, uh, which, you know, I think, I think, you know, large scale nation states are economically impractical. uh, And the only way they can subsist is through the continual, uh, basically, confiscation of wealth from their citizenry, right? Whether that's through taxation, inflation, or borrowing from the future. So, so so I think, you know, a, a more functional world is one in which, you know, you you have, instead of 250 countries, you have 10,000 city-states, right, and then, you know, each city-state, I think, is more economically manageable, and if it's economically manageable, then it can be held uh, to, you know, account in a a governance standpoint uh, more easily, Um, you know, the only reason we have these large-scale nation states, as I said, is because money printers exist. Um, and this is sort of like tangentially the, the big problem that Bitcoin solves, which I think a lot of people miss, unfortunately, is they think that Bitcoin is just some you know way to get rich, but that's not the point. The point is that Bitcoin breaks the back of the money printer and downstream from that, uh, you get a situation where, um, you know, if you can't fuck with the money and if you can't play Monopoly by, you know, keep pulling money out of the till, all of a sudden, you know, the orientation of the players in the game uh, moves towards more productive and cooperative behavior by nature. You, you can't paper over losses, you know, by, by just printing a bunch of money or you can't paper over bad decisions. So anyway, cu- coming back to that, like I think, you know, one thing Marx mentioned was the, you know, the, the abolition of, uh, you know, nation-state uh, borders. And it, the, the thing is, he just sort of spoke lip service to it. I, I don't think he actually uh, had a idea of how, you know, other than to basically create a global class of proletariat or worker, who should sure. essentially uh, all have the same rights and have the same stuff, which is, as we know, really stupid, because when you equalize everybody, you get this sort of, uh, I call it the, um, the tyranny of the lowest common denominator, like basically, you know, you sort of spiral down to the dumbest, stupidest, fattest, retired, most retarded person, right? Um, because Nobody wants to be holding the weight of everybody else. AKA democracy. Correct. Exactly. Yeah. D- democracy is the, you know, I, I, wrote a five part series actually that Shane Hazel did. Um, he, he read all five of them on, on his podcast and it was called, uh, why Bitcoin is not democratic. And sort of, I, I went in and basically tried to do a Hopper esque, uh, slaying of the notion of democracy. And I kind of, you know, went at it with a sledgehammer. I was like, this is genuinely the dumbest, uh, form of uh, governance because you know it kind of puts i mean th- there's multiple reasons which i probably don't have to explain in this um in, on this podcast but c- c- coming back to your, your question about marx I-, I don't think he really got much else right other than he made a bunch of observations which were probably accurate at the time because the world was going through a significant transition you know moving sort of from a from a feudal you know class-based system to this sort of uh know the industrial age where you 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 basically had a destruction of the prior class structure which had existed for for well over a thousand years um and i i don't think anyone really knew what to do with it you know and you you had these sort of schools of thought where some of the things that Marx pointed out were valid like there was a lot of hardship in the cities you know working with machinery back then was extremely difficult, unsafe, dangerous. You know, many people died in the process. It was dirty. It was disgusting and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, the counter that I sort of say to that is, and, and I've, I'm a, I've been an entrepreneur since I was 18, 19, is that you have to eat shit before you eat caviar. Um, like, you, you, you seriously do. You, you have to pull yourself up from somewhere. And the same way as when you're a startup entrepreneur and you start your first business, you're the you're the CEO, you're the accountant, you're the salesperson, you're the fucking cleaner, you're the customer service representative, you're everything. And you know, and I've done all of these things. When I built my first gym when I was uh 23 years old, I was I was in there, you know, 20 hours a day with the builders, putting fucking floorboards in and painting the walls and doing all that shit. Right. Then on launch, I was, you know, training classes and doing all that crap, and I was signing people like, you know, you you do everything, and that that sort of it's an ugly job in the beginning. And this is sort of what Western civilization had to go through through the industrial age. I, I think the problem
0: person. with the problem with communism and the problem with the Communist Manifesto is the shit you have to eat before the caviar. And even Marx and Engels recognized it that their utopian egalitarian state where everyone was on equal footing and everyone will live prosperously required an intermediary step that is a totalitarian, authoritarian regime to break down the existing systems. And the problem we've seen is every time somebody's tried to take that step in the direction that marx and engels uh suggest they don't get past the authoritarian regime they Mm -hmm. get that Mm -hmm. power and it's like well we kind of like it
1: yes 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 because what they've done is they this is what i think communists fail to understand is that whenever you create a power vacuum Mm -hmm. someone or something is going to fill it and generally if you if you kind of like you know if I guess maybe this is a, you know, maybe this is also historically accurate. I was going to say maybe this is an anomaly of kind of the the modern uh, sort of uh, the modern period, but you know the, the vacuum generally gets filled by the most ugly, disgusting, you know, single-minded maniac kind of person possible, right? Right. Um, you know, and maybe that was true in the past, but but I think you know there was far more. Um, I would argue that. the medieval times the feudal times and even the ancient times there was a greater degree of uh you know respect to higher powers whereas i think in modern times with the abolition of uh you know much of christianity and you know the sort of the spiritual uh identification that people have had with you know whether you believe in the truth or not of religion and gods and all that sort of stuff there was some sort of reverence to a higher power and therefore like some sort of um you know i guess hesitance to go full ball authoritarian whereas you know modern authoritarians think they are god uh, and therefore can do anything and you really get the the most disgusting kind of people uh, in power that fill the vacuum that you know stupidities like communism basically make way for
0: yeah and and, i mean do you think maybe there's a reason why anarchist systems and people who try and lean into anarchy throughout history not just current day where we see um, the Kurdish regions of Iraq and Syria having successfully and successful and thriving anarchist communities where we have uh, groups like Slab City out in California that operates autonomously with no government interference or government control the historical religious communities in southern Europe Italy and southern France mostly that have operated in the absence of government intrusion with no self, with uh, no government structures in anarchist fashions, have always been a decided, like, leaning towards the left, leaning towards a kind of brand of communism and a brand of mutualism, and why they default to that in the absence of a governing authority.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's something to do with the. Uh with scale, and it's something to do with, I mean, it's in the name communism. So, so like, h- how they basically function is through some sort of community. And the thing is, community functions at a small scale, like, you know, when you can actually know a number of people, and you sort of your network is, you know, one, two, two, two degrees of separation at sort of maximum, I think you can actually have that type of, uh, you know, that's a, that kind of environment. But, the thing is, as you start to apply that to a larger number of people, it, it becomes very difficult. And, and sure. this is comes back to what I said earlier about like having ten thousand city states versus, uh, yeah. you know, one big. I did. I have companies. joked
0: in the past that the most efficient and effective form of government anybody could ever have is an authoritarian, top-down communist regime. Uh, however, it just fails to scale beyond seven people in a single household. <laughs>
1: Yeah, basically.
0: Yeah, seriously. Seriously. Yeah. So when, when you have a single provider uh, taking care of people who they have an incentive to take care of, mm-hmm. they treat them properly. Uh, totally. But it's, it's a game of incentives. And going all the way back to Mises and human action, uh, communism has just kind of failed to lay out the proper incentives for human behavior uh, to cooperate and see peaceful, harmonious, prosper, prosper. Uh, prospering for individuals in a communist system. And that's how we've seen the Soviet Union, China, Vietnam, North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. Every attempt has failed in utter disaster.
1: It really has, yeah. I mean, as you said, like, there's a funny thing about the communists always wanting to remove uh, price signals, for example, and, you know, dictate prices. And what are they doing? They're actually, they're removing both the metric view which people you know can kind of measure or understand or ascertain incentives uh, and in doing so it's like trying to get a blind man to you know work with electronics like he just there's no visibility into uh the incentive structure and then what ends up happening is like it just it basically just they they created frankenstein out of every economy and and yeah.
0: what markets. good what good is universal literacy when you control what people are allowed to read
1: Correct. Correct. I mean, yeah, exactly. If anything, if anything, universal literacy under that type of a thing is probably the worst thing that has happened to the world because everyone's become a fucking commie. (laughs) Well, I I, I mean, literacy alone, I
0: mean, how much of the problem you said, like we said, it's been going with 174 years of perversion that the Communist Manifesto has been uh, perverting everything in insight not just politics but culture and family and academia and education um at what point did it like what, what point in history do you think it turned from just kind of being like a bolshevik and eastern european cultural brand of politics to becoming the cultural focus of modern western academia where it may not be the governing systems and the governing structures we have here, but it certainly governs how education is managed in the Mm. United States, especially at the post-secondary level.
1: Yeah, man, I think there's a couple things here. Um, you know, maybe I'll have to be a little controversial. So, so I think, you know, the, the, the French fucked it up first and foremost during the French revolution. They kind of, uh, you know, before communism was even a thing or a name, I think they, uh, instituted these kind of uh, centrally planned uh, mandates for things like education, etc, which, you know, the, the very fact that they came from some sort of central authority, first and foremost, you know, created kind of the the fertile ground for this stuff so so you know they were first i mean you know talking about education again you sort of then have the prussians who try to syst- take take what the french did and systemize it and basically indoctrinate it and uh start the 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 process of uh of schooling but but i think really what did it i mean world war one and world war two were were significant like obviously world war one was the, the the period of the bolsheviks but i think World War II gave the world a scapegoat in the form of Hitler, right? right. Um, which I mean, these days you can't even say the fucking word without getting cancelled, <laughs> right? Like you know, he he, you know, like it's people people are okay to talk about Satanism and the devil and all of that, which is supposed to be the worst thing possible. But if you say Hitler, that's like somehow worse than Satan, right? Like he's like the the, the worst incarnation of the most evil evil thing. But I think communism got either lucky or, you know, Hitler was just a convenient scapegoat for uh, basically infiltrating the the polar opposite type of ideology into civilization. And I think ever since um, World War II, that sort of stuff has been seeping into the West because, you know, it's kind of like the West got um, Germanic slash fascist slash right-wing ptsd uh after that all happened well and we constantly talk to, uh, about the way.
0: yeah we constantly talk about the next big great evil being the next hitler mm-hmm. that that's mm-hmm. something that's mm-hmm. ingrained mm-hmm. into everyone's mind from the moment you learn about the holocaust and you learn about world war ii in grade school like all of politics is my enemy is the next hitler it's the next totally. hitler it's the next hitler but we've already had the next hitler we've had stalin we've had pol pot we've had Idi Amin. we've had ronald reagan like there are enough people who have done worse things than hitler to all of humanity on a global scale mm-hmm, mm-hmm, the rothschild mm-hmm. family uh, mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm, european mm-hmm. union like mm-hmm. how can we still hold back on saying hitler was the worst and this is not a defense of hitler in any shape or or manner but like how can we continue to hold Hitler as the scale of evil when we ignore so much that has surpassed him?
1: Totally. And and that's the thing. That's what's created such a blind spot uh, in uh modern thinking. And and this is why it's almost like a it's it's almost like a collective social trauma. It's like, you know, the you show the swash sticker and people freak the fuck out. Um, you show the hammer and sickle and they're like, Oh, that's cool, you know, maybe I'll get a fucking shirt. It's completely fucking retarded. Like, it's the most backwards thing you know that that one can think of. Like, I remember I was um, I was on I was in Berlin for a little while. I lived there for a little bit during twenty twenty, and the, you know, on the tram, like uh, on one of the main roads, there's a statue of Karl Marx. I'm like, what is going on here? Like, you know, and then you know, on the other main road, there's one of Lenin, and it's like, man, like. These guys did at least an order of magnitude more damage, if not multiple orders of more, more multiple orders of magnitude more damage uh, than the other fucking psychopath. Um, but you know, because there's this major socio, you know, collective PTSD around uh, you know the, the fascism, uh, which, mind you, like remove Hitler, remove Mussolini, and all that sort of stuff the one thing that I actually appreciate about fascism way more than communism and stuff, at least they have like a call to greatness and like, you know, being the best version of yourself. Exactly. There's like some sort of pride. There's some sort of like, you know, push for, uh, you know, be fucking elite and elite in the sense of like, be the best person. you Like maybe maybe I shouldn't say be the best person because, you know, they're, they're kind of more focused on like, out-competing and, you know, out and all that sort of stuff. But, but there is there is at least that in fascism, whereas, like, you look at uh, communism, it's like be a fucking loser, basically. Um, and, you know, if you're enough of a loser uh, and everyone else is a loser, then, hey, we'll all have the same shit. And it's like it's a – one is like a, a, a draining kind of, you know, ideology, the other is the other. But that's sort of the thing. It's like, you know, in many ways, I think – communism you know sort of got its break because of fascism and in in maybe in many ways fascism was kind of like a um a response to the stupidity of bolshevism uh you know because that had really taken the world by storm post um you know world war one so you had this kind of opposing forces and as i said because fascism was far more um you know orderly and functional and you know they whooped the asses of the fucking commies very quickly or the or the lefties and the democracies and all that sort of stuff but you know in their hubris blew themselves up and then became the scapegoat and as you said like in culture in school and everything like i mean even even movies that libertarians you know hold dear to our hearts like v for vendetta right what is the, the dictator is a red fascist. Right. Right. Um, and that's where all of our attention is gone. We're looking this way. And in the back door, all the other crap came through.
0: Well, I mean, how do you reconcile or how do you feel about like I can't remember the exact wording of the quote. It's from the road road to serfdom by Hayek um and based on his experiences of serving with the fascists like he he fought on the side of fascists in spain mm-hmm. in the civil war because the communists were the enemy and it was like mm-hmm. pick the lesser of two evils for him um but he wrote in the road to serfdom that like the only difference between fascism and communism at the end of the day the people in charge is who they consider the enemy yes. and they consider each other the enemy rather than the uh realizing the fact that they are more closely aligned with each other than they mm-hmm. are opposed uh, to the true enemy. And the true enemy of both communism and fascism is reason and human liberty. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. the free men who can think freely should be the enemy of both. But for uh, somehow, neither fascism nor communists uh, can recognize that
1: fact. I mean, maybe they do recognize the fact because they they kill all the freemen and then they just aim the bullets <laughs> exactly. at each other, right? So right.
0: at the end of the day, somebody's gonna die um, in either system. And, and yeah. as unfortunate as it is, um, I, I don't think that's unique to fascism or communism. It's almost just a it's almost a symptom of human governance. Whether it's fascism, mm-hmm. communism, monarchy, democracy, feudalism, like human beings. Have a history of being a violent species that is inherently self-interested, and at the end of the day, to me, that's the biggest failing of communism: is a misunderstanding of human nature.
1: Human nature, totally, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is we 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 (laughs) echo that in the book big time. Is like, Marx was a very, very, very poor psychologist, like really poor psychologist. Didn't understand human nature one iota. His whole His whole philosophy is built around the idea of if you remove privation, you know, and, you know, people are satisfied with enough food and shelter and thing, everyone's going to be happy. Like, But that's the dumbest concept in the context of how human beings function and think. Like, if that was the case, like, I mean... Well even even
0: in our fiction, even in our science fiction and our fantasy. Yeah. You look at a series like Star Trek. Star Trek is not based in reality or anything like that. It is the best vision for humanity's future that fiction writers can come up with where we're a post-scarcity society where we have unlimited energy on demand and at demand we can synthesize food. Nobody wants for anything. There is no money in Star Trek system. That your capital is your reputation. They still find reasons for conflict and war constantly, even in that utopian post-scarcity society. And that's just fiction writers. Imagine Mm -hmm. what reality would actually bring to it. And how could we hope that the potential of one day harnessing fusion energy in replicator technology to make nobody want for anything would lead to anything other than people trying to control access to that energy and access to Mm -hmm. that technology?
1: Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, and, and, and I guess this is, this is the point that um, where you, you know, you sort of, you see the difference in the quality of thinking between the, the Mises and the, the Mangas and the Rothbards and the Austrians of the world versus the, you know, the dumb dumbs like Marx is that, you know, one acknowledges the fact that conflict is real. You know the the human beings are uh, going to have, at the very least, if we don't have a conflict over some sort of tangible resource, uh, we'll at least have a conflict of opinion and a conflict right. of ideology and a conflict of who and who gets to use what at what time. Like, so that that's really what we need to deal with. And and this is, I mean, what's the holy gray what's the solution for this is like it's property rights is you know the sure. the very basis of trying to deal with this uh problem of conflict yeah. and you know the dumbass is like in communism they they run around with the banner of let's abolish private property rights it's like the one thing that deals with conflict let's get rid of it and then we wonder why we have so much conflict morons well,
0: to to lean into that pivot there i mean i, I think we've established a real firm understanding of where communism has gone wrong and the problems it has created. And I I don't think we need to rehash the casualty counts of various communist leaders throughout history or the starvation counts of uh, people in the Soviet union or central Africa under communist regimes. But how do we fix it? And that's the focus of your book. That's the focus of your work is how do we undo the damage caused by this seminal work of, poor philosophy and that's what you're trying to do is create a resource that can fix the book and fix the future so what are the next steps and like where do we have to go and where do we go from here to attempt and undo that
1: damage yeah it's tricky man Uh, i mean this is gonna take time and whether the damage or whether the risk of further damage is ever alleviated is, you know, beyond you or I to ever guess. I think, you know, uh, human beings and stupid ideas are always going to exist. Um, you know, the, the you know, it kind of, I get this, you, you know, that meme, it's like strong men create good times, good times create weak men, weak men bad times, bad times create strong men, you know, yep. it's kind of like that cycle, right? And, you know, th- there's probably going to come a time again, like if we, you know, go through all this effort and fix everything and, you know, come out the other end, you know, some retired descendant of ours is going to go and create the same problems again. And we go, I've got an idea. Well, how about we do a global government um, now that we have the technology, right? And, you know, they're going to sort of institute some neo-technocratic neo-tech- version of communism under a different name. Um but notwithstanding that, it remains our duty to try and do something about this. And I think, you know, the the a low-hanging fruit is what you're doing with this podcast, what we tried to do with the book is try and like actually discuss better ideas and and, and kind of try and use region reason logic uh, to you know to, to contend with these things and hope that you know despite all evidence to the contrary, that people are still, you know, possess some level of, you know, reason and logic. I, I kind of lost hope in the last two years. You know, I still <laughs> walk down the street and see people in the middle of the fucking street wearing masks. Like, yep. I, 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 at this point, I don't know whether they're humans or robots or, you know, what they are, but there's like something going on there, which, you know, makes me makes me sort of question you know the capacity for human beings to, you know, deal with reason. But once again, benefit of the doubt. You know, I think ideas and education might help with that. Um, the the other thing, and this is sort of why uh, I'm such an avid Bitcoiner is I think, you know, m- money is money is the tool that enables human cooperation at scale. Like you, you, right. you can't you can't do cooperation at scale without money. Um, I, I can barter way.
0: all I want with my neighbor, but at some exactly. point we need to move things to the next city.
1: Exactly. And, and it's not even the next city, even the next neighborhood. Like, you know, right. the, like the lack, the the problem of the coincidence of wants is a major problem. Like, you know, if you've got apples and I've got bananas, but, you know, I want a fucking shoe, you're going to find someone who's going to have shoes, but that person's also going to need to want apples. And then, you know, if he doesn't, then he's got to find somebody else who, like, it gets very, very, very complex very quickly. And, um, you know, money's the only way to, to solve that. But, you know, money performs a bunch of other functions. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a scorecard. Like, who? how do we know whether the decisions that we're making uh, with our human action, with our energy, with our scarce resources, are accurate and in the right direction, or not accurate and in the wrong direction? And, you know, profit and loss basically give us feedback as to what we're doing, and you know, once again, you can't have profit and loss without a unit of measurement, and that unit of measurement, once again, becomes money. So you've got this, you know, medium exchange unit of account, you know, and the store of value. It's like if you're do, if you're providing excess, you know, value to others, you want to be able to store that somehow so that you have the utility of optionality in the future, and that sort of lowers time preference so that you can think further. The lower the time preference, the further you can think. The, the greater the projects you can work on, and that's essentially how civilization is built. So if we don't sort of fix the money piece, um, you know, we're kind of floundering, and, you know, we'll I, I think we'll end up in the same virtuous, or I shouldn't say virtuous, vicious cycle uh, over and over again. And, and I think Bitcoin, specifically Bitcoin, not crypto, I think all the crypto shit is just modern digital fiat, you know, preparing people for digital gulags. Like... All it's done is, you know, if you look in the crypto space, you've swapped out Jerome Powell for Vitalik or for Charles Hoskinson or whichever other, you Sand know, and exactly, <laughs> all, all the same. Like basically each of them want to be the new controller of the money and they know that it's such a big market. This is why Andreessen Horowitz and all these big venture capital firms and everything are going after crypto and they they, they bash Bitcoin and they promote crypto because they know they can print money out of thin air. Like they used to actually have to invest in businesses that had to build teams that had to take on risk, that had to actually produce a product or a service. Now they can get a small marketing team. They can slap a fucking name and they can literally print money faster than the federal reserve could have a dream of printing by launching a new crypto. Yep. So all of this crypto crap is just, you know, more of the same fiat stupidity. Whereas Bitcoin has done something unique, which is it's, introduced money organically it's not claimed it's not tried to market it or any of that sort of stuff it's like put it out in the wild it's now this network that is running and remains in consensus without a central coordinator which is absolutely fucking mind-blowing in the first place and the result of that is a monetary network that no state or no you know central party can uh like manage or censor or anything like that. And we have a money that is fixed in supply, like and and that to me, like the big idea there is like it maps to energy and time, which are things we can't produce or create out of thin air, right. And that sort of, you know, uh, sort of similarity in, in scarcity or similarity in, in the fixed nature of the two means that we might actually have a money that would keep uh, economic actors from the individual up to you know whatever scale of state may exist on that kind of a system, accountable, economically accountable, and now, I, I'm not 100% sold
0: on Bitcoin being the answer here uh, myself. And this is not a knock on Bitcoin or crypto. I, I, if I was a very very early adopter of Bitcoin, I still hold and use bitcoin i pay my rent in cryptocurrency i use it for daily transactions every day where i live it's become a de facto currency for me and i'm fortunate enough to live in a community where it's widely accepted Mm -hmm. um but what i don't see is Bitcoin used. Uh, specifically see coins like Bitcoin Cash and Dash, Zcash, and Monero. Those are the four that can be used on a regular basis. And I've seen problems with the Bitcoin ecosystem, and I blame the Winklevoss twins personally. Uh, I I remember the day the Winklevoss twins announced they were going to try and make Bitcoin corporate and take it onto Wall Street, and from that day onward, it's been an influx of Wall Street types and investors and the people who think Bitcoin is just a tool to get rich who have corrupted the spirit of it. And to me, a currency in order for it to do the things you're saying it needs to do, which I agree with fully, needs to not only be scarce, it needs to be usable. And Bitcoin has become very difficult to use
1: no, nah, not at all. Bitcoin's easy, the easiest thing to use. It's got the most liquidity, which is actually what determines well, for usage. For me,
0: like the issue is like I had, I've had two Lightning Network uh, transactions fail in the last week for simple small transactions, uh, where I was able to pay with Bitcoin Cash, no problem. Bitcoin mm-hmm. has issues. That nobody wants to address. I think the crypto ecosystem as a whole, if people can ever grow out of this digitized monkey art nonsense with NFTs, Mm -hmm. can Mm -hmm. solve these problems. I like I'm not as down on all of crypto, I'm really down on the crypto as stocks and investments mentality that the majority of people seem to be embracing. In um, um, the NFT nonsense that is corrupting the spirit of crypto, in my opinion. Uh, but the maximalist approach of just Bitcoin to me, it, I, it, it doesn't sell because I also think there's a need for some kind of physical tangibility to your money as well. Some kind of security that your everyday person can have in knowing they can hold it independent of a bank or an internet connection or something else to access their funds. In um, my next pitch to you, there something I, I have not seen used anywhere outside of New Hampshire, and in our community is that we actually circulate gold notes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: physical gold down into one one thousandth of an ounce <laughs> notes uh, that we circulate as
1: actual money here in New Hampshire. Yeah. So, so let, let me let me answer these backwards then. So that notes thing, there's a company doing the same thing with Bitcoin, is that each note is a bearer instrument. It's just got a private key um, associated with it. at 0.001 of a Bitcoin. So you can do the exact same thing with Bitcoin. Um, and you can actually have the bearer instrument uh, move between people. I mean, you know, uh, NVK, you know, created open dimes before he created the cold card. And open dimes are effectively, they function in the same way. Um, you give an open dime to someone, and that's the bearer instrument you don't need internet you don't need anything and you've actually passed the bitcoin along so you can do the exact same thing um and it's uh, it's it's better than doing it with um uh, you know with gold because you can you can you know that piece of paper that you print the private key on is is much cheaper um and you know, you you still know your actual supply in relation to the whole. So, so Bitcoin sort of trumps um, that. I think the the thing with Lightning Network, you know, I call myself uh, in the Bitcoin space like a Bitcoin boomer. I still like on-chain Bitcoin. I use on-chain Bitcoin for everything. Um, I rarely use Lightning Network. I do sometimes. Um, I, I personally, you know, think Lightning Network's got a long way to go. So as a result, um, I don't use it much. But you know, these these problems are all being solved. Like Lightning Network has come a long, 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 long well, way. I, I tell my Bitcoin Cash
0: friends like. The thing that worries me about the Bitcoin cash space and tying up any amount of my net worth into Bitcoin cash, uh, as much as I find it usable and it's a great tool for daily transactions and small transactions, the day that somebody convinces the Bitcoin miners with consensus, yeah, maybe we should raise the block size, Bitcoin cash goes to zero. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Because that's the only advantage it has over Bitcoin is on-chain transactions.
1: uh, Yeah, but I mean, the 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 whole block size thing I th- I think if anything the block size should just continue to go down or get tightened because then that creates a market uh, on for for, for um, transactions because if you if you remove the market for transactions you actually create bigger problems later which is essentially the problems that um, Bitcoin Cash is having um, you know there's no there's no economic incentive you you basically do what the commies do to ec- economics is that they remove the incentives for people to participate in the process of mining. And that that's why keeping that strict and fixed is so important. And, I mean, you know, you have the technical problem of every time you increase the block size, you fork and you create a bunch of problems. And this is sort of where Bcash has kind of diluted itself to, you know, oblivion. And they, they shot themselves in the foot by doing this. Whereas, you know, every natural system scales in layers. And this is where I think, the you know bitcoin made the appropriate technical trade-off by maintaining strict block size you know base chain is for settlement and then you abstract upwards on different layers and you use settlement like arteries and veins work like that plumbing works like that electricity works like that everything works like that in sort of in in layers and the layers they can talk to each other but they never do each other's jobs and and this is where um you know i think architecturally speaking and you know i've got an engineering background like even in my early days, like I came into Bitcoin in 2016 quite late. And, you know, when I first saw the block size debates and all this sort of stuff, like I I didn't understand, I I had no party that I was a a part of, but I looked at it through an engineering lens and I was like, yeah, the fucking scaling solution by abstracting throughput and maintaining security on the base makes way more engineering sense than trying to cram it all uh, in the thing. So, So once again, like they shot themselves in the foot, but I want to also touch on the the piece you said about you know the Winklevoss and the the basically the um the mainstreamization of of Bitcoin and I would argue that crypto has been far more mainstream than Bitcoin. Like if the WeF and you know all these sort of uh, enemies of humanity and individualism hate anything, it's that they hate Bitcoin. They hate proof of work. They'll do anything to frame Bitcoin as. Uh, you know, the the next coming of Satan um, or the next coming of, you know, right-wing fascist Hitler or whatever. And there's a reason why is because while Bitcoin has, uh, you know, infiltrated, and I would argue that, you know, it's Bitcoin's duty to amass economic uh, mass, basically, or to accrue economic mass, it will do so. And this is why it's like the ultimate Trojan horse. It will do so by basically infecting Wall Street, infecting government, infecting, you know, uh, rich people, infecting the balance sheet of, you know, large institutions. It'll infect all of these things. And in doing so, it actually makes them participants and supporters of Bitcoin. So it actually changes their internal incentive. And this is the way you beat them, is you don't beat them through the economic mass of a, you know, of a half-assed PayPal, which is what's essentially happened to Bcash. Bcash is basically a broken PayPal which nobody uses, and that has zero economic mass, which, sure, it does payments, I mean, but so does PayPal. Um, you know, maybe Bcash, you know, exceeds PayPal in the sense that it's, you know, uncensorable to a degree. Like, at least it's uncensorable, you know, between you and I, um, right. whereas PayPal, you know, doesn't provide that. But there's no economic mass there, and the only way we win this long term, coming back to my original argument is, like, how do we fix the world? Is that we break the back a money printer, and you do that, by making everybody in some way, shape, or form have some exposure to Bitcoin economically. And as they do that, as their economic exposure to Bitcoin becomes a larger and larger and larger percentage of their total net worth, then they will actually jump ship. guarantee No fucking bureaucrat is going to sit there and support the state when his $1,000 worth of Bitcoin back in 2015, in 2030, is now worth $10 million And his incentive to stay uh you know a a um, supporter of the state versus you know maintain bitcoin like they'll start jumping ship and this is how we fuck them up is we we infect their system and we suck their brain power uh, from inside and that's what bitcoin does very very well because it's a trojan horse for all the enemies uh, i
0: do and- worry about the kind of the monopoly of currency though even if it's a decentralized currency uh putting all of our hope and our banking on one just bitcoin uh to me that is a risk because to me it like wow. every exchange needs to be voluntary and any means or medium of exchange that serves the purpose should be acceptable as long as both parties to the transaction consent to it. That's a voluntary society sure. me. That's a true anarchist sure. society. And I want to see a competition in currencies. I want to see gold circulated. I want to see silver circulated. I want to see Bitcoin circulated and Bitcoin cash, but I also want to see privacy coins like Monero and Zcash take off and people start to embrace not just uncensorable transactions, but untraceable transactions as well.
1: Sure. I mean, but do you, do you want to see like, Post-it notes circulating as currency?
0: If if people are willing to take it, that's what it comes down to.
1: But exactly, <laughs> and that, that's the thing. So so Bitcoin doesn't need to be mandated, which it never never really has been. I mean, you know, one could argue Salvador, you know, kind of mandated it, but who really gives a fuck? Like, you know, they can do whatever they want. Um, you know, B- Bitcoin is voluntary by nature because in order to participate sure. with Bitcoin, you need to buy it and use it. So you know, Bitcoin doesn't have some sort of central planner or central party. Or authorities say you must use Bitcoin Um, people self-select Bitcoin because it's got liquidity and it's got the most uh, robust property rights and the least ability for anybody to fuck with it so I think what will happen is much like what happened with gold is that all the competing monies will just diminish in relative value and what will happen is like Bitcoin will just accrue it'll be like a black hole not because someone said so but because economic actors in their own uh need for self-preservation will seek to store the majority of their wealth there now they may you know put a little bit away for monero you know to you know buy some drugs somewhere for example um but you know more than likely again on an abstracted layer of bitcoin like layer two or some of the layer three stuff that's happening there'll be private transactions there that are perfectly private and probably better than monero cheaper than monero and more you know uh more private and anonymous that will basically impact monero's uh, economic mass again and that will sort of drain all into bitcoin and this is the thing it's like all of it's going to end up draining there and it won't be um by force it'll be purely voluntary because bitcoin is just superior and, now, and that's perfectly fine think, for an economic thing
0: do you think there might be some kind of a risk to the incentive structure here of these competing voluntary economic systems and Bitcoin and alternative currencies with something like the BRICS agreement taking shape with China, Russia, Egypt, Iran and Turkey getting together and saying they are no longer going to circulate fiat. They are no longer going to uh, allow the US dollar and the euro to be the reserve currencies. They're going to issue a new currency that's backed by receivable and deliverable commodities and Mm -hmm. metals. Mm um Mm -hmm. sound money like some it's essentially sound money as far as government money can get uh do you think there's a risk to the incentive for these alternative currencies now that something like that is actually taking shape granted it's taking shape in a way where a couple of fascist and communist governments have been incentivized to do something good to compete with another bad government
1: yeah, I mean, I, I I, don't see it as a risk long-term. I think, if anything, you know, it, it, it will suffer from the same problems as um, as modern fiat currency anyway. They're going to get themselves in the same tangle. They're going to get themselves in the same problem. They're, they're, they're at some point going to fractionally reserve it or they're going to, you know, print more than there is. You know, they're, they're the ones who own the balance sheet or who own the ledger and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's still going to suffer from the same damn problems that fiat has suffered from the beginning of time um you know whether it's you know backed by whatever the, the the problem is it's it's not actually backed by any of those commodities It's backed by the word of the dictators that it is backed by the commodities and that's the issue like um and, and this is sort of you know the, the problem that bitcoin is so eloquently solved it's like it's not backed uh by anything other than energy and energy can't lie because we can't conjure energy up out of thin air um, and we can query uh you know how much bitcoin there is by you know one line of code and we can see that there's that much and this is how much i have in proportion there's the block height like bitcoin mm-hmm. solves that whole problem of um of you know what something's backed by uh, very very elegantly so so you know maybe in the hearts and minds of people you know they might say oh you know now there's another alternative to the us dollar but to be honest you know my guess is as much as they might try I think that the U.S. dollar is honestly too powerful, too infiltrated, too liquid, and they will fail because number one, they're incompetent. Bureaucrats are always incompetent, you know, and government bureaucrats of, you know, most of all, are the most incompetent, you know, possible, you know, human being, you know, subset of human beings out there. Um, and I think the trouble they're going to have is that the U.S. dollar will probably spread faster with through stable coins, then they can get their um, BRICS CBDC up and running uh, in order to, to gather up enough liquidity. Now, maybe in the next decade, they might be able to pull it off. But the problem is in the next decade, you know, Bitcoin will have grown another, you know, couple orders of magnitude. So, so, so they're in a tight space. The US is in a fucking tight space. They're all in a tight space. And they're all kind of like always picture it like um, – They're in a ship which, you know, has been hulled and they're trying to, like, scoop water out with a bucket before they drown. And, you know, they've all got time against them. And the beauty is Bitcoin's got time for it, like, you know. It reminds me
0: of a line from a a French film, The Man of Action. Uh, It's a biopic about Lucio Atobia. He was a Spanish anarchist who fled to Spain after going, uh, fled to France after going AWOL from the Spanish army after the fascists won the revolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, he starts a, a... anarchist revolutionary group in paris and they start robbing banks and doing left-wing anarchy shit and just trying to like take down the system in the mm-hmm. only way they don't know how because they're being ineffective but at one point he gets a meeting with Che guevara and he pitches to Che guevara a plan of how he can help him and uh, fidel castro take down the u.s and he has an eloquent plan and a great articulation it's like i'm gonna counterfeit the shit out of their money Because they don't back it by anything and we're going to destroy the value of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. banks. And Che Guevara says to him, he's like, it's a brilliant plan, but a gnat can't kill an elephant Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Um, So even communists recognize that inflation and the money supply can take down a giant uh, but they still do it uh, do it themselves one final question I do want to ask you and I ask everyone this because like I said I myself am do identify myself as an anarchist and I don't believe in the role of government in protecting human liberty and human freedom but in the fight against The communist agenda and the propagation of communism, what do you think the role of government is, if any, in protecting individualist and libertarian values in society? And how would it differ from the role of a government in a communist society?
1: Yeah, this one is a tricky one. Something that I've been thinking about more of late is that, you know, I guess the closest... I don't know, label that I could give myself is, you know, an capitalist or, you know, but, but I think more Bitcoiners kind of, kind of suits me. And, you know, under that sort of banner, it's like the idea of a, of a government or a state, you know, is, you know, rather stupid because you end up in the, in the same place that we are today. But the question then becomes, it's like, okay, so, you know, is there a difference between government and governance? Like, you know, do people need to organize in some manner? Um, and, you know, the the answer to that is generally yes. You know, most people say, yeah, you know, there will be forms of governance. And and then it sort of becomes like a question of semantics. It's like, okay, so, you know, this new form of governance, it's not government, what what the fuck are we going to call it? It's like, oh, you know, committee or, like, you know, rule by sovereign individuals or whatever. Like And you kind of get into, like, really sticky ground. And, and this is sort of where I think sometimes, you know, uh, libertarians and caps and everything get a little bit unstuck. So, you know, my, my, my thinking is that, you know th- this is all a problem of scale mm-hmm. you know as you said like you know authoritarian regimes work in the house uh and you know in my house for example you know like i am the lead i'm the fucking breadwinner i call the shots i say what the fuck we're gonna do you know and um you know w- at least for things that i know that matter right like for example where the fuck we're gonna live and you know where I'm going to work and stuff like that, right? But then, you know, the wife, you know, gets like I give more, you know, exactly. I'm like, you just fucking deal with the food, you know, and you know, deal with the stuff that makes you happy, like you know, just. But you know, there's no way she's going to have, you know, a say in, like, for example, you know, you know, where we're going to allocate our investment, for example, long term for the family, right? This is not going to happen. So, um, so so anyway. I guess my thinking is that we will probably see, you know, like, okay, let me take a step back. Modern governments, because they're so large that they are by default, you know, morally bankrupt, financially bankrupt, intellectually bankrupt, and all of that sort of stuff. So so they don't fucking count at all at this point. Like anything that they do is going to be immoral from the outset because they're starting from the, from the wrong uh, place. Now let's, Fast forward maybe 100 years and let's say, you know, society's transformed, we're on like a, a hard sound money standard, you know, the, you know, these city states have emerged because there's a, you know, my, my guess is that there'll be some sort of, uh, you know, economically viable um, range within which city states may be able to operate, you know, if it's a large flat territory, um, you know, maybe they can operate with a million citizens, you know, if it's a hilly, you know, mountainous territory, maybe 50,000, I don't know, but somewhere in that range, I think we'll find a balance or an equilibrium. And my guess is that those city state type operators may look and feel more like maybe like companies of some sort, you know, and, you know, like, I, I don't know, like, you know, so long as they're economically accountable and the, you know, who they're economically accountable to are their customers, which in that sense, would be their, um, you know, their constituents or their, you know, their, their citizens, for lack of a better term. Um, you know, my guess is that it'll be a far more just type of arrangement than what we have today, which is today we have like a subject overlord type of relationship to government, whereas, you know, in the future, maybe, you know, we can move it to being like a customer service provider type relationship. And, you know, I, I've never been to a restaurant where I walk in and the waiter slaps me in the fucking face before serving <laughs> me food. You know what I mean? Like that, like, I mean, I've heard of a place in Vancouver where you get insulted by the waitresses. I got a place know, in is, Boston too. Okay, there you go. So, so, but that's a thing. You know what I mean? So, like, people You're go for that like,
0: experience, and- exactly, you know. So, so, that
1: would be, you know, my guess is that in those types of environments, you know, those city state operators, you know, will have a, you know, duty to try and, you know, maintain some sort of order and coherence and try and, you know, do their best not to allow these kind of stupidities to emerge again. So so anyway, th- that's not a straight answer. It's a difficult question. It's it's an incredibly
0: we'll difficult say. question. It's one I find even libertarians and anarchists often have a hard time answering because most anarchist philosophy was written in days that predated anyone even conceiving of the idea of the Internet.
1: Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. the
0: world is so interconnected nowadays that it, it's impossible to not – envision a future where we aren't a globalist society now what shape and form that globalism takes a lot of people have a a terrible connotation on the word globalism but globalism doesn't have to mean one world government it can mean Mm -hmm. an interconnected people who are all independent and sovereign but who can communicate and do business with each other across the world without barriers and hindrances
1: yeah my my feeling like my feeling of what would be the the holy grail would be like a you know, a, a world in which you have kind of a localist uh, type governance with global interconnectedness. That's kind of like the thing. So right. so you get the benefits of the global interconnectedness from the internet and from like global money, but you uh, uh, you basically uh, don't have the, you know, the clash swabs of the fucking world, uh, you know, calling the shots for everybody. I swear yeah, no, that guy is a reincarnation of Karl Marx. I swear to God. Uh, the,
0: the only person I've seen working on anything along those lines has been Karin Ross from the UK. He's a phenomenal activist. He's a former British diplomat who turned whistleblower. Uh, he was part of the UN weapons inspections programs and uh, part of the British uh, diplomatic mission to Iraq. And he ended up turning a whistleblower about them fabricating lies to start a war, uh, left the British foreign services and, became an anarchist after his experience working for the government so long on such a horrible mission
1: and That's now he soul.
0: yeah now he runs an international nonprofit called the uh independent Dipl- uh, diplomat where he helps anarchist communes and anarchist groups in Kurdistan and Italy and uh, Eastern Europe where people have established autonomy from their local governments uh, deal with the diplomatic relations of like protecting their autonomy. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. And he's the only one who's, I've seen, who's recognized a need for even anarchists who want as local as possible governance and control, even in some of the anarcho-communist groups in Kurdistan and some of the more anarcho-capitalist groups in South America still need the same communication uh, and Mm -hmm. same infrastructure to be able to deal with those outside of their own covenant communities, as Hoppe would call them. Um, Yeah. yeah, It's a fascinating problem that I I, one of the things I love about anarchist philosophy is there is no answer. We need to find it. But the only Mm -hmm. way we're going to find it is by breaking up the hegemony of empire that we live under now.
1: Yeah, we need to experiment. And, you know, it's better running, you know, 10,000 experiments than it is running one experiment like and and that's the whole point and especially when the one experiment could fucking wipe everyone out off the face of the planet you know it's like oh you know i've got a bright idea let's block out the sun so we can stop global warming fucking genius bro like you know th- this is like exactly the kind of megalomania that you know we're at risk of you know versus you know you have 10,000 city states none of them has the capacity to go and try and block out the sun because they're all running you know micro experiments and figuring things out of their own accord so yeah smaller is better and you know the fact that we have you know we're so technologically adept today you know I I think the interconnectedness piece will solve itself um and you know I'm glad to hear that sort of this kind of work is being done by someone as well it's mad well
0: well, it's been a fascinating conversation. I've learned a lot of your perspective and I do really appreciate it. And I appreciate the work you're doing uh, so much. A lot more people need to be doing it. Um, everybody, make sure you go check out his book on communist.com. You can go pick up, pick yourself up a coffee. Anything you want to leave people on Alex?
1: That's it, man. You know, if people want to like grab a copy of the book, it's on Amazon, you know, so it's like, it's, it's, it's cheap and it's a good read and, you know, if they can support, I'd really appreciate it. And um and yeah, hit me up on Twitter. Svetsky writes. It's kind of my my handle there because I've been banned from Twitter a number of times. So um, who knows? Maybe these days I won't get banned because now you can actually say stuff uh, without getting banned. But do you know, do you know what the, the irony of all this is? I, I've I've kind of have have Twitter fatigue. So I think next year I'm going to kind of like unplug from Twitter. Finally, at the time when it's like least likely to get banned, I don't want to use the yeah. shit anymore.
0: Uh, Me, I'm not on Facebook. I have my Facebook open, and I might post something once a month on Facebook. Deleted that shit fucking
1: five years ago. I don't even know what that is anymore.
0: Unfortunately, my stepmother and a few other people I try and keep in touch with can only do so via Facebook Messenger. God damn it. (laughs) That's the only reason I still use it. The only people I know who don't have Signal uh, or Sessions or some other encrypted messaging service only use Facebook Messenger. So.
1: God damn it. It's All so right. sticky. I'm surprised it's even still around. Fucking
0: hell. Anyway. Well, I, well, believe it or not, Facebook's actually integrating end-to-end encryption in Messenger. It's not by default. You have to go enable it for the messaging mm-hmm. secret sessions, but it exists, uh, which is mind-blowing. And uh, I will give Facebook credit because they do own WhatsApp, which is an encrypted messaging service. When the Interpol and the European Union served Facebook with warrants, for all of the tracking data on a couple whatsapp accounts and um their message history facebook responded we don't have the message history it's encrypted not stored locally um we can let you track any future messages sure but first thing we're going to do is they pushed a message to the accounts and said by the way interpol asked us for your information you should delete the app
1: oh really yeah so
0: oh, i'll give them credit based.
1: okay that's fucking pretty based
0: I mean it's not quite as quite like Signal when uh Signal was served a warrant asked for their server data, they dropped a thermite grenade on their own server. Oh really? Um, but <laughs> so okay, but at least that. they did something. Uh, so I will give them credit where credit is due, but uh you know, they're still an evil conglomerate. So <laughs> indeed.
1: Indeed, indeed.
0: Uh, well, again, thank you so much for coming on. Everybody check out his book. Link is in the description. Head on over and uh check out the other projects as well with the link trees. And until next time, be free. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Subversive. Make sure to like, subscribe, and turn on notifications to get alerted every time we go live on YouTube. And make sure to leave some comments and reviews on whatever platform you listen on to let me know what you thought of this episode. And a huge thanks and shout out to our sponsors and the awesome members of the Insurgency on Patreon. If you enjoyed this content you can join the Insurgency on Patreon by following the links in the description for patreon.com slash odom. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always catch it the next day on YouTube, Odyssey, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts every day. So until next time, everybody, be free.